I'm sure you know the, the well-known quote from C.T. Studd. Some like to sit within the sound of church or chapel bell. I'd rather run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. That's what church must have been like for Titus on the island of Crete. Paul has left him there, as we were saying earlier on this morning, to set up church in every center of population, to set right what was left undone and to appoint elders in every town. Now, I need to say this. When I talk about church, uh, I'm not talking about sandstone buildings or brick buildings or weatherboard buildings. I'm not talking about stained glass windows and pipe organs. Not that there's anything wrong with any of those things necessarily. I'm not talking about programs and bands because I don't think the early church had programs and they didn't have music for all of the time. So what is a church in the New Testament sense of the word? It's not a building. It's, it's a network of relationships. And you see that very, very clearly here in, in Titus chapter 2, don't you? Uh, 20 years ago when we were planting churches in, in Hobart, uh, people used to say to me sometimes, where's your church? And uh, tongue-in-cheek, I used to say, well, I don't know, which uh, used to irritate people. <laughs> and, and, and sometimes I really didn't know because we were moving around so much. We had to rent. We don't have buildings in our church plants in Hobart. We've had to move around quite a bit to school halls and, and uh, share premises with other denominations. So we, sometimes it was difficult to know where we're going to be next. And Cornerstone Church in, in, um, in Hobart meets in the Italian club most of the time. But some, uh, sorry, in the Greek club most of the time, and then sometimes they have to go up the road to the Italian club, and uh, then sometimes even to the Polish club. And so, you know, you've got to keep your eye on the website to know exactly where they're meeting that, that week. And people say, but what do you mean you don't know? How can we find you if you don't know where your church is? You're the pastor, aren't you? Where is your church? And I would say, uh, some of them are probably at work, some will be at home caring for elderly relatives. Others will be dropping kids off at the school gates. Some will be visiting their neighbors. Some will be probably sitting in the dentist waiting room. Uh, you see what I'm saying? It's a bit of a cliche, isn't it? But church is 24-7. We don't go to church. We are church. Church is not a building or a meeting. Uh, of course we meet. That's one of the main things we do. We congregate. We gather. But church is more than that. It's a network of relationships. It's, you see how it's described here in verse 14? A people eager to do good. That's what the gospel produced in Crete. A people. According to verse 14, Jesus died to purify for himself a people. Not a group of isolated individuals, and, but a people for his own possession, a people you see what it says there in verse 14? Eager to do good. Zealous for good works. I remember being up here in Sydney years ago now. I think about a week of meetings up here. And I was being driven to the airport. And there were a number of us in the car. And I can't remember who was driving. I don't think it was David Cook. I know what his driving's like. But, uh, <laughs> and he knows what my driving's like. <laughs> but there were a group of us in the car. And we were just talking. And then suddenly the driver just pulled across about three or four lanes of traffic. Just yanked the steering wheel. Uh, he almost gave me a heart attack. Uh, looking, he was looking for a gap in the traffic, traffic. He was wanting to change the lanes, and no one was giving way. And 
if he hadn't actually done that, I, I, I wouldn't have caught the plane. I wouldn't have got back home to peaceful Hobart where there's hardly any traffic. Um, <laughs> that's, an that's the kind, that's what Paul means here. That's the kind of people, <coughs> excuse me, that we need to be not just passively drifting along through life, going with the flow of the traffic, but proactively looking for opportunities to do good. Eager to do good, he says. Zealous for good works. And Paul wants to see the whole island of Crete littered with gospel communities. I, I, we want to see the whole city of Sydney littered with gospel communities like that, don't we? Ordinary people doing extraordinary things together in the name of Jesus. Mums and dads, young and old, Jews and Gentiles, slaves and free, interacting with one another, vying with one another, egging one another on, eager to do good. That's what the gospel produces. It's the truth that leads to godliness. That's what the gospel is. It's the truth. That's how Paul describes it here in Titus. It's the truth that leads to godliness. So let's see how this works out on the ground. I want to speak about two things in this talk. I want to talk about the grace of God in the gospel in verses 11 to 14. That's one of those purple passages in Titus, verses 11 to 14. The grace of God in the gospel. And then I want to drill down into the earlier verses, verses 1 to 10, and talk about the grace of God in the gospel community. So let's think first of all about the grace of God in the gospel. See what he says in verse 11? For the grace of God has appeared. It's that, that word epiphany again. It's a key word in Titus, as I said this, this morning. But what does it mean? In, in Acts 27, um, I don't know if you've read through Acts recently, and, but you remember in Acts 27, we're, we're given a very graphic description of a shipwreck off the coast of Malta. It's so graphic you almost feel seasick reading it, don't you? Obviously, Luke was on board. He must have been on board with Paul to, to write like that. It's such a vivid description. They're on their way to Rome. And he tells us about, he tells us, neither sun nor stars appeared for many days as the storm continued to rage. Now, now I want to say the, the sun and the stars were there, but they, they didn't appear. They were hidden by the clouds. And in the same kind of way, more positively speaking, the grace of God has appeared. It's, it's not that God hasn't always been gracious. I mean, goodness me. He's the creator of the universe. Somebody said, I remember one of the old uh, Puritan quotes, or rather one of the old reformers going to the stake, and, and as they led him away to be martyred at the stake, he, he turned around, and it was a beautiful sunny day, and he said, if God gives a world like this, to his enemies, what kind of a world is he going to give to his friends? God has always been gracious. He causes the, the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. He shows mercy to his enemies. God is gracious. He's always been gracious. But you see what Paul is saying here? It isn't that God hasn't always been gracious, but like the sun breaking through the clouds, so the grace of God has appeared dramatically and spectacularly in the coming of Jesus Christ into the world. The Word became flesh and, and dwelt amongst us, and we beheld His glory, full of grace and truth. I mean, what do you think of when you, 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 you use this word grace? What do, you, what do you think it means? Back in 2010, uh, Ruth and I uh, were involved in what was a fatal car 
accident on the uh, Bruce Highway going just outside Cairns. We were driving into Cairns and steady stream of, stream of traffic in both directions going at about 100k and uh, everything was peaceful and then suddenly uh, a car just veered off from that lane of traffic right coming right towards us. It was heading right for us about 100k and we were going about 100k. Instinctively I just went like that with the steering wheel. And, and providentially, there was, a, there was a, a, a drive by the side of the road at that point. Otherwise, there would have been a ditch. And, and after, after eventually I pulled up and looked at the car, there was just a tiny little scuff mark on the side of the car, which I could actually rubbed off. The, the, the higher people never got to know about it. It, it just sort of, just a little paint mark on, on the, on, on, on the um, now just imagine, this is a horrible illustration, but I'm using it quite deliberately. Just imagine if you um, were responsible for that accident. I'm not sure exactly what happened. I think the lady who was driving the car had young children in the back. She might have been distracted by the children. She, the sun might have got into her eyes. I don't know, because the, court, the case never came to court. I think she was so bad, badly injured, it never came to court. And the people in the car behind us, they were all killed. It was a head-on crash. Now, just imagine, and it's, it's, it is a horrible illustration, but imagine that you were responsible for that. And, and you, you appear in court, and you're charged with causing death by dangerous driving. What do you want in that situation? Do you want justice? Well, maybe you do, because you might feel really guilty, and you might feel that you do need to be punished. Maybe you're going to ask for justice, and you will probably lose your license, and you might get jail. Or you say, well, there were extenuating circumstances. The, the, I was distracted. The, the sun got in my eyes, and I, 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 I worked nights, and I dropped off to sleep just for a split second. I'll plead for mercy. Well, again, uh, you might get a suspended sentence, and uh, community service, and, uh, and lose your license for a while. See, what is, justice is getting what you deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. But what is grace? Grace is getting what you don't deserve. So you're given a brand new car with a tank full of petrol for a whole year. And you say, that's scandalous. That's offensive. Grossly offensive. I'm shocked at that. And so you should be. So you should be. You see... Justice is getting what I deserve. Mercy is not getting what I deserve. And grace is getting what I don't deserve. It is scandalous. It's getting, grace is God's generosity to those who deserve nothing but his angry punishment because of their sin. I deserve hell, but I get heaven. I deserve punishment. That's what justice demands. Mercy lets me off. I'm able to live in this lovely creation. God has suspended judgment on me for the moment. I'm living in his beautiful world. That's mercy. Mercy lets me off. Uh, it's, it's the day of mercy right now. Justice demands that I get punished. Mercy lets me off. But grace, what does grace do? Grace brings me in into God's favor, into God's family. I deserve nothing and I get everything. 
That's why John Newton wrote that hymn. We all know it, and when we hear the bagpipes, we start to sing it, don't we? Amazing grace. But we're not amazed anymore, are we? John Newton was scandalized that God should have mercy on, on a wretch like him. It is amazing, it is shocking, it is scandalous. And if you're not scandalized by the grace of God, you haven't understood it. Now, th there's some confusion here about the text uh, between the different translations. And how, in, some verse, in some translations, it, 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 it reads like this, that the grace of God that brings salvation to all has appeared. And in, in other translations, it, it reads like this, uh, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all. Uh, either way, you've got a problem. Are all saved? No, we know they're not. Uh, has everybody had the opportunity to hear the gospel as, the, as, as it appeared to all? Not yet. There's a lot of people to be reached yet. But either way, it makes no difference in the end because they're all here, aren't they, in this chapter. Here they are, young and old, male and female, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, bosses and workers. They're all here in these verses, in verses 1 to 10. No one can say, I'm too old. You can't teach an old dog new tricks. Or, or I'm too young. I, 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 wanna, I, I don't want to be tied down just yet. I want to live a little, and then I might think about things. No one can say, you know, the, the men can't say, oh, it's for the women and children. No one can say, oh, I'm too bad, you, you just don't know me, because it's for cretins. It's for compulsive liars and for brutal thugs and, and lazy gluttons. See what it says there in verse 14. Jesus gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness, all wickedness, every sin. That's what it says. It doesn't matter how complicated your life has been. The grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all kinds of people, every sort of sinner. Because of what Jesus has done for you on the cross, God is willing to deal with you, not as you deserve. Now, that's the message we've got. That's the message Titus had for Crete. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared. When you think of God's grace, what, what do you think of? Do you think it's a character trait in God? You know, his sweet side? I'll appeal to his sweet side. Or do you think it's some kind of uh, uh, spiritual substance that God gives to his people? You know, he zaps us with his grace, some kind of power that he puts into it. When you think of grace, when you think of the grace of God, what do you think of? Paul thought of a person. When Paul thought of grace, he thought of Jesus. Jesus Christ, our great God and Savior, he calls him who gave himself to redeem us from all wickedness. Jesus is the grace of God. He is God's gift. He came to live for us and to die for us and to rise again. He is God's grace given us, given to us to be with us. God doesn't give us a blank check. The gospel is not a get-out-of-jail-free card. He gives us Jesus. And in Jesus, the grace of God has appeared. There's been an epiphany. You can see it. You can see it in the eyewitness accounts, in the Gospels. I love what, I remember hearing uh, Donald MacLeod, a Scottish preacher, saying once, there is nothing un-Jesus-like about God. I love that. 
I think that's right. You read the Gospels. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you want to know what God's like, read the Gospels. Look at Jesus. And when you look at Jesus, the grace of God appears. Doesn't in the person of Jesus. God is not some great scary being who, just waiting to punish you. He, he, he's come to us in Jesus to make himself known to us. To give himself on the cross to take the punishment of our sin in our place. There's been an epiphany. And it's to do with facts. It's to do with ideas. It's not to do with ideas. It's to do with facts. It's to do with history. It's to do with an event in time and space. Something has happened. In human history, the grace of God has appeared, teaching us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Now, let's take a look at how that works out on the ground, what it looks like in the lives of these people. And I want to speak to you about the grace of God in the gospel community. That's a bit of a buzzword today, isn't it? I mean, we used to talk about our Bible study groups or our connect groups or our growth groups, and, and now people talk about their gospel communities. And I don't mind that. I think a gospel community is a good description of church, whether it's big church on a Sunday or little church during the week when Christians gather. It's, 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 it's a community that is shaped by the gospel. But what's it like? Uh, uh, you're familiar, I'm sure, with Oswald Chambers and his devotional book, My Utmost for his highest. He, um, he, he's commenting, in, I remember reading this, he was commenting on, on the story of Peter you know, walking on the water. And, and he says this, this is his devotional commentary on that episode in the Gospels. He said, walking on water is easy to someone with an impulsive boldness, but walking on dry land is altogether different. Peter walked on the water to go to Jesus, but he followed him at a distance on dry land. And he says, we don't need the grace of God to withstand crises. Human nature and pride are sufficient for us to face the stress and strain magnificently. Mag mag magnificently. I mean, good old Aussie mateship will do that. Mateship will do that for us, won't it? I mean, you think of the fires and the floods and all the the cyclones and all these terrible things that are happening in Australia right now. And we see the best of Australians, don't we? Coming together, looking out for each other, helping each other. We, you don't need the grace of God to withstand crises. Human nature and pride are sufficient for us for that, he says. But it does require the supernatural grace of God to live 24 hours of every day as a saint, going through drudgery, and living an ordinary, unnoticed, and ignored existence as a disciple of Jesus. And he says, he says, it's ingrained in us that we have to do exceptional things for God. But we don't. We don't have to go around boasting to our non-Christian friends and telling them lies about what God's been doing in our lives. We don't have to talk things up just to impress. No, no, it's ingrained in us that we have to do extraordinary things. We have to be do exceptional things for God, but we, do, we, have to, we have to be exceptional, he says, in the ordinary things of life and holy on the ordinary streets among ordinary people. And this is not learned in five minutes. Now, that's what these verses describe. Ordinary people living extraordinary lives. And, and as Paul drills down into the specifics of what that might look like on the island of Crete, we might want to switch off thinking, though, this is all very 
and glamorous, very ordinary. But actually, this is the very stuff of God's mission. God, the local church is the instrument that God uses to reach the world. And when we pray, Father, your kingdom come, we're, we're actually praying for this kind of living to be established in us and in our churches and in the world. So look at it with me as we come into these verses. We're, we're entering a very first century world here. And, and, and some of the things we see here will raise questions, and there is a question time afterwards. Uh, we, we, we can't pick out, all, pick out all the details here, but let me try and just pull the threads together in these first ten verses. What will a healthy church look like on the ground? What will a healthy church look like here in Dremoyne? Paul opens a window for, for us here to see, to, just to show us what a, a healthy church looks like. And I want to say three things, uh, just drawing all the threads together rather than picking up every little detail in the passage. It'll be counter-cultural. It will be counter-intuitive. Counter and it will be counter-revolutionary. It'll be counter-cultural. You see what it says there? The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared and it teaches us to say no. Francis Schaeffer said, we live in a world that says no to nothing. But the gospel teaches us, it, the gospel gives us willpower and it gives us won't power. The gospel teaches us to say no to ungodliness and yes to upright, holy, self-controlled living. It teaches us to say no to worldly passions. And that isn't just sex, it's, it's anger and revenge, it's ambition, it's materialism. It's the kind of thing you see on your TV every night of the week. It's the kind of thing that comes up on your Facebook feed every day. People are passionate about these sort of things, about food and sex and, and shopping and sport. And, and there's nothing wrong with any of those things. But it's an overpassion. It's a, a form of idolatry. And it sort of trickles down to us and we think that this is how we're supposed to live. This is the life. But the grace of God teaches us to say, no, that's not what I'm here for. I don't have to live for money or for status. The gospel gives me willpower, it gives me won't power, and I, I need both. So let me ask, what are you saying no to? And what are you saying yes to? As you think about your Christian life. How are you living differently? How are you standing out from the culture? Os Guinness uh, says, that, says this, he says, just as the party is the plausibility structure for Marxism, and the senior common room at the uni can be the plausibility structure for secular humanism, so the church is the plausibility structure for the Christian faith. As Christians, we are to be counter-cultural. Not only in the way we behave, but also and especially in the way that we relate to one another. That comes out so very powerfully here, doesn't it? See, society has blurred our, our cross-generational boundaries. Uh, generally speaking, the, the young have no respect for the old, and the old have no time for the young in Australian culture. Generally speaking, and, and, and let me say even in churches, and sometimes, dare I say it, especially in churches. And Paul addresses that head on here. He, he speaks across the generation gap, do you see that? To old and young. See what he says to the older men. People like David Cook and myself. 
She says, don't be a grumpy old man. Earn the respect of the young. Don't demand respect. Earn it. Young people should be able to look at you and say, I want to be like that. When I'm old, level-headed, worthy of respect, sensible, sound in faith, love, and endurance, ripening for glory. I remember seeing a cartoon once with a, the family were together and the grandchildren were, were saying to their parents, what's, uh, what's, what's grandma doing? And she's sitting there and reading her Bible and, and uh, the, parents, uh, the mother says, oh, she's, that's, she's cramming for finals. That's one way to think about it, isn't it? It's des desperately trying to get things right because you, you realize as you get older that time is running out and soon you're going to meet your maker and you're not quite sure and will he, will he, will he, will he save me or will he not? And so you're, you're desperately trying to get, looking for answers, cramming for finals. That's desperate. Or are you ripening for glory? That's a different picture altogether, isn't it? That's the sort of, that's how I want to grow old. That, that's, I want young people to see the older people in, 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 in my congregation, in your congregation, ripening, not desperately cramming for finals, but ripening for glory. And it's lovely to see that, people still bearing fruit in their old age. Isn't that lovely when you see that in a church? And in verse 6, he tells Titus to encourage the young men to be self-controlled. You see, in, in Crete, no one is self-controlled. Uh, the answer to every argument on the island of Crete was a punch in the face and a bloody nose. Young men on the island of Crete were macho, misogynistic brutes. But you're, you're Christians now, not Cretans, so live counterculturally. That's what Paul is saying. If, if to be an Aussie bloke means booze and betting and buttoning up your emotions, well, don't be afraid to be un-Australian. I know that's the unforgivable sin as far as the government is concerned, but be un-Australian. Live counterculturally. Break the stereotype. Live in accordance with sound doctrine. Sound just means healthy, healthy doctrine. And then, do you see what he says to the older women in verses 3 to 5? See, most of those women in Crete were in arranged marriages. They, they, they would have had no choice in their marriage partner. Many would have had unconverted husbands. They were married to liars and evil beasts and lazy gluttons, and that wouldn't have been easy. Domestic violence would have been real, a real problem on the island of Crete. And so Paul says to the older women who have got so much, you have so much to offer, don't think that you've passed a use-by day. There was apparently a cult of, of uh, more aristocratic in, uh, in, in Roman society who used to spend their time not drinking coffee but wine. And uh, so alcoholism became a bit of a problem. Uh, and he's saying to the, to the older women, don't sit, don't sit around drinking wine, gossiping and criticizing the younger generation. Do you realize what a resource you are? You're, you're a living encyclopedia. You've got so much life experience. Some of you, you've raised families. You've, 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 you've followed the high and, and that is such a, a wonderful calling. And, and you've got so much to pass. Don't deprive the young mums of that. See what he says? Teach them how to love their husbands and their children. Apparently not all husbands are easy to love, so my wife tells me. Don't know who she's referring to. <laughs> you see, all of us fit in here somewhere, don't we? In these verses, Paul speaks to six groups of people that need to live out the gospel life. Older men, older women, younger women, younger men, and they're all together in this church. 
Titus himself and the slaves. And, and you see, there are different discipleship challenges for different people. We, we don't all face the same challenges in life. Gender makes a difference in your discipleship. Age and, and status and, and, and stage of life makes a difference. Your, your role in church makes a difference. Sometimes your position in society makes a difference. And in the workplace, it doesn't make a difference in, in your standing with God. We are all equal in his eyes. But the way our discipleship looks will be different. Tim Chester says, has some really good advice about this. He says, if you're young, find someone older to disciple you. If you're old, find someone younger to disciple. And if you're in between, do both. I think that's a good, that's good, really good advice. It's a, I, I suffer, I've suffered most of my Christian life from never having been discipled. That's such a formative time when you're a new Christian. You need someone to come alongside you and show you the ropes and, and walk with you, don't you, through those things. It's a useful kind of rule of thumb, I think. One up, one down. Who's discipling me? Uh, who can I disciple? A friend of mine, Brian Wilson, who we used to work with in, in Tasmania, I remember him saying this, for many years I missed the fact that I was to be a son to those who were older and a father to those who were younger and a brother to all. That's how to do church, isn't it? That's what church should look like. It's, it's not a meeting on a Sunday for a particular demographic. It's a network of relationships 24-7. It's sharing our lives with one another. Someone was in one of the testimonies this morning. 24-7 from Monday through to next Monday. That's how we're to do church, cross-generationally. Society has blurred our cross-generational boundaries. And even more so, increasingly today, society has blurred our gender distinctions. So we're not allowed to talk about men and women anymore. We're, we're, we're not encouraged to celebrate the difference, to, to, to distinguish the male-female roles. To do so is politically incorrect. We have to address one another with gender-neutral pronouns or else. But in the beginning, God made us male and female. That's how it is to be in the church. Not Genesis 3, but Genesis 2. By God's grace, we need to get out of Genesis 3. I think too many, too many Christians are living in Genesis 3, but Genesis 3 is the curse. Remember what, what God says to uh, uh, the woman in, in Genesis 3 and verse 16? You will desire your husband. And, and it's, it's, it's not a desire for sex, it's a desire to control. That's what the word means. It's the same word that he uses in, in chapter 4 and verse 7 when he says to Cain, sin is crouching at your, at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. And, and so what's being described there in Genesis chapter 3 is, is the battle of the sexes. It, there's, there's radical feminism there and there's no chauvinism there. She will desire to rule over her husband, but the husband is bigger and stronger and uh, he's got brawn on his side. And he will, he will want to overrule, not, not by his brains, because women are much more intelligent than men, but by sh sheer brute force. And so Genesis 3 is, it's, that's not where we're meant to live. That is the curse. 
We need to get back into Genesis 2 and remember how God created us, male and female, to be serving God side by side, the woman being the helpmeet to the man. Christopher Ashton has got a, a lovely book on, uh, on that. It, it's not a, the how-to book about marriage. There's lots of those. But it's about the theology of marriage. And he he's, got, he's, got a, he's got a big book called Sex uh, in the Purposes of God, something like that. It's massive, and it's got a challenging title. <laughs> but the, the, the more popular kind of paperback is just called Married for God. Don't you want to be married for God if, if, if you have a, a partner? But even if you don't have a partner, the way we do church is we, we, we don't sort of put things into a kind of a blender and every, everybody's the same. And No, no. God made us male and female. And that's a beautiful thing. So, grace trains us to live, trains, train, trains us to live together like that, counter-culturally, across generations, and between genders. And that means living counterintuitively. What, what do I mean by that? Well, we're, we're, we're to live, it's another buzzword, isn't it? Yeah. Gospel intentionality. We're to live together with gospel intentionality. But don't you see that here in the passage? There's a so that here in these verses. Do you see that? In verse 5 and verse 8 and verse 10. Why love your husband, verse 5, so that your husband won't belie the word of God? Why be a godly leader, verse 8, Titus? So that those who oppose you will be ashamed and have nothing bad to say about you. Why obey your boss, verse 10, slaves? So that in every way you might make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. See, that doesn't happen as a matter of course. We don't live that way naturally or instinctively, do we? It's counterintuitive to live like that. Naturally, instinctively, we're all self-centered. We're like tourists, you know, with selfie sticks. And uh, here I am at Sydney Opera House. But you can't see Sydney Opera House. You know, you're holding a selfie stick, and you, you, you're there filling the picture, and the Opera House is behind you. You can't see it. Here I am at the Grand Canyon, one of the great wonders of the world. But it's you. Get out of the way. We want to see that great wonder of the world. You're in the center of the picture. The real wonder of the world is not you. It's what's behind you. You need to turn around and get out of the picture and see something or someone bigger. Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's not about you. It's about Him. It's about making Him known. It's about spotlighting Him, bringing glory to Him. And we will need to be intentional about that so that in every way we might make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. The King James Version says, in every way we might adorn the gospel. I think it was for my 50th birthday, my, my sister sent me uh, uh, one of those um, kind of uh, ancient kind of maps of, of the part of the world I come from, Wales. Uh, and it, uh, it was a beautiful piece, of, uh, it was a painted thing, it was a beautiful piece of uh, art and she sent it to me for my birthday, and it was all rolled up in a tube when it arrived. But the problem with that, of course, is that you've got, you can't just keep it in a tube. You want to put it on the wall, and you've got to buy a frame for it. And, uh, boy, that's expensive. <laughs> my my daughter-in-law is, um, is an art teacher, and, and she, she's a portrait painter. 
and she says, well, when she does commissions for people, she has to spend so much money just finding the right frame so that the, 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 her painting is seen at, at, its, at its best. That's what it means to adorn the gospel. It's like framing a picture. So people come into the house and they say, oh, that's a lovely, that's a lovely frame you've got on the wall there. <laughs> they, they don't say that. I wish they would because it costs more than the painting. It's living in such a way as to, so that people will, will say, what a great savior you've got. We're to show him off. See what Paul says to Titus in verses 7 and 8. He holds Titus up as a, as a role model, as every pastor should be for his congregation. He holds Titus up as a role model, and he says, by your example and in your teaching. Maybe you've heard people say sometimes, you know, but preach the gospel. Use words if necessary. What a terrible thing that is to say. Sounds good, doesn't it? It sounds catchy. Preach the gospel, use words if necessary. But my friends, if you never use words, if you just set an example and never explain, people will get totally the wrong idea, won't they? They think it's about you. They'll think, uh, what lovely people in that church. <laughs> I could never be like them. I could never live up to that. You don't want people coming in and saying that sort of thing, do you? You don't want them to say, what lovely people. You want to say, what a great savior they've got. We don't want them to admire the frame. We want them to see the one who's in the picture, and that it better be him, not you. Our great God and savior, Jesus Christ. That's the strongest, strongest statement about the divinity of Christ in the whole Bible. That's what we're about. That's what we want to showcase, isn't it? Our great God and savior, Jesus Christ. And how we live and how we relate to one another is just the frame to show him off to a watching world. See, it's, it's not enough just to live it out. You have to speak it out too. You have to talk about your great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because if you don't, they'll say, oh, I could never live up to that. But neither can you. Can you accept for the grace of God? It's God's generosity to you in Christ that has made you the person that you are. And they need to know that. So tell them. So this grace-filled life is, is counter-cultural and it's counter-intuitive. It doesn't come naturally to us. And this might, might sound strange. It's counter-revolutionary. Better explain that, I think. See what he says to the slaves in verses 9 and 10? First century slavery, of course, is very different to what we might think of as slavery. I mean, a huge percentage of people in the Roman world were slaves. About a third of the population were slaves. It is more like an employer-employee relationship than the kind of 17th century, 18th century racial slavery that we're aware of. And notice what he doesn't say here. He doesn't say, organize yourselves into a protest movement. Plan an uprising. I mean, there were slave uprisings. Spartacus, people like that. But he doesn't say, he, that doesn't come from Paul. He doesn't say, go on strike, march through the streets, liberate yourselves, beat the system. Now, that's not necessarily wrong. There's a place for those sort of things. I come from Wales, which is a, a kind of socialist country. And the trades union movement is very strong in Wales. And I think it's right to withhold labor from your employers if they're not treating you fairly. So I'm not, I'm not against those sort of things. But you see, it just wouldn't have, it, it would have put Jesus on a par with Karl Marx or Spartacus. 
And Jesus is much greater than that. Christianity is much more radical and revolutionary than that. You see, the Christian way is not to overthrow the system. It's not to fight the structures, but to infiltrate them. And in fact, to ignore them altogether, so that in Christ there is neither male nor female, slave or master. There are no bosses and workers. We're all one in Christ Jesus. There's something so attractive and so compelling about a Christian congregation where we all sit around the Lord's table together, different backgrounds, different ages, bosses and workers, different, different races, different strata of society, sitting down together around the communion table. There's a sense of com community there that's unique. You don't see it in a footy club or anywhere else. We live, and you see, we live in a society that is coming apart at the seams. It's, it's separating and coming apart. And here are a bunch of people bedded in your neighborhood, in your community, coming together under Jesus Christ. How powerful that is. Living out the gospel. Sir Henry Holland was a brilliant eye surgeon who worked with CMS in India. He said, if, if we Christians don't outlive and outlove every other religion, we don't deserve to win. And that ought to challenge us. If you, if you don't find the Christian life challenging, either it's because you're right into the world and no different from those around you. Dare I say it, you're woke <laughs> and progressive. And there's a lot of evangelical Christians now who are virtue signaling. Or the opposite is maybe it's because you've withdrawn from the world. And you live in a, a holy huddle. And you're not mixing with people who are not Christians. You see, the challenge for us is to be in the world without being of the world, like a boat in the water. When the boat is in the water, that's where it's meant to be. But when the water gets into the, the boat, we're sunk, aren't we? Where's the church meant to be? In the world. But if the world gets into the church, well, we're in trouble. In the world, but not of the world. That's where we're meant to be. Mark Glanville, who's an Australian working in, the, I think, Regent's College in Vancouver, in one of his blog posts says this. He says, the church exists as a contrast community that rejects the idols of culture and is enlivened by the values of the kingdom of God. This means rejecting idols of consumerism and nationalistic exclusion and embracing gratitude, generosity, and celebration. That's the picture of a healthy church. That is really practical stuff. See, Titus is, can I put it this way? Titus is not meant to teach the Cretans how to lead a home group Bible study or how to chair a parish council meeting. As important as those things may be, Paul doesn't write this to Titus to teach him how to do those things. It isn't, this isn't about learning how to do Christian things. This is about how to live in the real world Christianly. That's what Titus is about. That's what Paul is calling for. Good news leads to the good life. And the good life makes the good news look good. And so this, I was going to call it a vicious circle, but it's not a vicious circle. It's a virtuous circle. It just rolls on, down and down through the generation. And that's how the island of Crete was to be won. And that's how we'll win Australia again. Through the truth that leads to godliness. And the godliness that makes that truth attractive. Let's pray.